The sermon text this morning is from the book of John, chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. For those of you who know me, I think most of you know that I, uh, I'm a pretty big fan of Christmas. I really do love all things Christmas. I love, you know, the presents and the tinsel, trees, real trees, that is, and, um, and just the cheer, the parties, everything. I, I can take Christmas and make it very, very, in fact, it's, um, it's a weak spot in my soul, actually. I can make it quite sentimental. And I find that probably some of you can look at this Christmas season in a similar way. We can make it sentimental. Other people take Christmas and they co-op it in a different direction. Some make it more of a humanitarian holiday that Jesus did all these nice things and we should do nice things like Jesus. Other people take it in a more mythological way, that it's kind of the spirit of Christmas. But in all these different views of Christmas, whether it's sentimental or functional or mythical, we tend to draw Jesus out of the meaning of Christmas. And so we've been looking at this series to kind of reintroduce ourselves to the true meaning of Christmas. A passage like ours today, it really does challenge a sentimental view or a functional view of Christmas. You know, the word has become flesh and dwelt among us. I mean, what we're talking about here, when you think about Christmas, is it's probably more akin to an invasion than it is kind of a a sweet party. He's become flesh and now he lives among us. So this series in first John, or um, the series in the first chapter of John, uh, think about the first thing we study is Jesus came as the word. So we're not just out here kind of doing our thing. No, God has sent a son to speak the truth of his word to us, to challenge us, to lead us, to draw us to himself. We're not left kind of in a vacuum to figure things out. God sent his son as the eternal word to speak to us. We do well to pay attention. But then the next week we saw that Jesus has been sent as the light, the true light. In other words, we're in a world of darkness. We're happy in the darkness. But he comes and invades with true light. And here today, he comes uh, not in a theory or not in some sort of idea, but he comes in the flesh like us in every way. And so we have this challenge of how do we understand him coming in the flesh? He's left heaven and come now to dwell among us. I want to give you five considerations. You might not grab all five. If you grab two or three of them, that's fine. But there are five reasons I want to put before you for him coming in the flesh like us. And I'll go through them one by one. First, he comes in the flesh 
to dwell with us, to dwell with us. Look back with me at 14. He says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is interesting. He's come to dwell with us. He's the word. Now remember, go back to verse 1 and 1 and 2. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. It's this eternal word that has now become flesh. Now, John is very clear. He doesn't want us thinking that Jesus just appeared as a human. He doesn't want us just thinking that he kind of looked like one, but really wasn't one. So he uses this little Greek word uh, for flesh, which means like flesh and blood. He came among us flesh and blood, just like us. So, So that means that he would have been in a womb for nine months with blood, developing tendons and muscles and organs, and he would be birthed like us. And then he would move from infancy to adolescence to adulthood, just like us. He would be faced with, with fatigue and hunger and, and weakness. He would, be, he would be experiencing suffering, physical suffering, uh, temptations, hardships, just like us. He had a will. He had an intellect. He had emotions, just like us. I mean, what we're, to be, what we're told here is when he came and dwelt among us, he was just like us, the same stuff. But though he increased in humanity, he did not decrease in divinity. In other words, the addition of flesh was not the subtraction of glory. So we have this beautiful picture of God himself coming among us like us, in every way. One author said it this way. He says, at the most basic level, the incarnation means that Christ took on a human body, the same in all essential aspects of ours, from fetus to infant, to child, to adolescent, to man. It had the same nutritional and environmental needs. It had the same chemistry, the same anatomy, the same physiology. It was not an illusion, but real and tangible. The incarnation was not a theophany, the temporary assumption by God of a human appearance. It was a genuine entering upon the possibility of all those experiences which our our bodies expose ourselves. Hunger, thirst, weariness, pain, seeing and hearing, flogging, crucifixion, death and burial. Do you see what John is saying here? This is incredible. I mean, God himself comes to be among us, but very much like us. In every way. This is the idea of naming him Emmanuel, God with us. Now, the question, though, should be why? I mean, why? Now, I will say John doesn't seek some metaphysical explanation about this. He just puts it out there. He says, God came among us in the flesh. And we're wondering why. Why would the, why would the eternal cram itself into the temporal? Why would the unlimited move toward the limited? Why? Well, it says he came to dwell among us. In other words, he came to, that word is used uh, to tabernacle, like to pitch a tent among us. Now, our minds are to be drawn back to Exodus 29, where God commanded Moses to build a tabernacle so that God's presence would be among his people. And so Jesus coming to dwell with us is reminding us that God is moving closer to dwell with us. Now, friends, I want you to understand 
God often feels aloof and distant. God always desired to be with us. That's why he created a garden, a kingdom, a temple, if you will, for the first man and the first woman to dwell together with him. Though they sinned against him and were removed, God moves towards them. He walks with the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then he commands Moses to build a tabernacle all through the desert for those 40 years so that God could be with them. And then he commanded David to draw up the plans for a temple that it could be his footstool, that he could dwell with his people. And then we see now God move even closer to us and coming and you know, living with us in the flesh. Do you see, God's always moving towards us. And the whole intent is that we would be with him forever. And the passage that Philip read this morning in Revelation 21, let me read it again. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither will there be mourning, crying, or pain. The former things have passed away. Do you, do you understand God in this context? That he, he loves you. He wants to be with you from the beginning. We often run from God because of the nature of our sin. Uh, we, we can fall into self-loathing. We can hate ourselves. And we think that if we hate ourselves, he must hate us. If we don't even like to be with ourselves sometimes, he won't want to be with us. And yet you see the theme from Genesis chapter 1 and 2 all the way till the end in Revelation 21. You see this theme, God wanting to be with us. What love of God to give us a son to dwell with us. The implications are profound. Why would he do this? You know, in the Greek mind, the Greek mind saw the body as a prison. And death, death actually liberated us from the, because our bodies are, in fact, in some ways a prison. We can't get out of them. Uh, they're subject to weakness and frailty, sickness and death. Our bodies are constantly being buffeted by the problems of this world. And so the ancient mind thought, well, if I can just get out of my body, now I can be, I can live in infinity. And so the Greek mind was getting out of the body, and yet God enters into a body. Why? Well, friends, he, he, he'd entered into a body so that he could experience life as you and I do, to sympathize with us. I mean, the struggles that you and I have of broken relationships, betrayal, mischaracterizations, lies, difficulties in relationships, he experienced all those things. He went through the temptations that you and I face and often fall under. He went through those. He didn't fall. He was without sin, but he faced the temptation to the 10th degree. I've never faced it because I usually collapse before it. So I don't even know the true pain of temptation. He withstood them all. Why? So that he could understand. Again, you know, when we struggle in life, uh, we think, well, he, he doesn't understand. We don't draw near to him because we think, well, he doesn't know what I know, but he does. And this is the beauty of the incarnation. But not only has he come in the flesh to dwell among us so that he can sympathize with us in our weakness, he came in the flesh so that he could die. Do you do understand that. Uh, the, the word of God and the light of God, uh, God doesn't die. If he's God, God can't die. There is no way for God to die. But Jesus had to take on flesh so that he could die. Can, have you thought about this? 
He took on flesh for the specific purpose that he, as a human, could die our death so that we might live. J.I. Packer, theologian that passed a few years back, he says, The crucial significance of the cradle at Bethlehem lies in its place in the sequence of steps down that led to the Son of God to the cross of Calvary. Bound up in the Christmas message of the Incarnation is the Easter message of the Atonement. For if Jesus were not God made man, then we remain in our sins. Do you understand that? He had to take on flesh to save. So why did Jesus come in the flesh? To dwell with us, to sympathize with us, even to die with us. Now, folks, I understand this is a difficult idea. It is hard. We don't grasp it all. There's a mystery here. But, you know, the great church father, Augustine, he said, with those things you don't understand, he says, hold them with reverence and be patient. With those parts that you do understand, cherish them and marvel. So this is a season of marveling. I know it's a season of chaos, particularly when you have children, but it's a season that we want to fight to marvel over. What is this idea? This would not be a human invention to think up the idea of the incarnation. We wouldn't, we'd think the other way, but God thinks counterintuitive to us. Okay, secondly, Jesus has come in the flesh not just to dwell with us, but to reveal the glory of God to us. Look with me at the second half of 14. He says, we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So here, John is saying, now this is John the apostle, remember? John the apostle is saying, we've seen his glory. We've seen his glory. Now that should shock you uh, because nobody sees the glory of God and lives. I think John is reminding us back here in Exodus chapter 33, you know, Moses was probably the greatest man in the Old Testament. At least he was the most humble man. It's spoken, he is attributed, humility is attributed more to Moses than any other character in the Old Testament. And Moses one time asked to see the glory of God in Exodus 33. In fact, he says it this way. Moses says, please show me your glory. And God said, I'll make all my goodness pass before you. And will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I'll be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man cannot see me and live. So we have this picture of God himself. His holiness and his glory is so great that we cannot, we as sinners, cannot look on him. But what God does is he tells Moses, continuing in chapter 33, he's going to hide Moses in the cleft of a rock. And he said, my glory is going to pass by you, and you will see literally the backside of my glory. We see this in 34. He says, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So God reveals a part of his glory by revealing himself to Moses. So when John says that we have seen his glory, John is saying we have seen the glory of the one who's full of grace and truth. Moses didn't see this, but John sees it. 
full of grace and truth. In other words, with the coming of Jesus, John knows grace, the very glory of God's grace is seen in that Jesus has come to save sinners. He's come to clear the guilty. He sees the truth of God in Jesus Christ as he proclaims the gospel, as he gives promises, as he brings judgment. You see that in Jesus, you see the fullness of God's grace and truth, particularly at the cross. So at the cross, you see the truth of God bringing about punishment for sin. And yet you see the grace of God in the forgiveness of sinners through faith in Christ. In Christ, you see the fullness of all of God's truth and all of God's grace. And Jesus said this to his disciples. He said in John 13, when he had gone out, this is right before Jesus, he's entering into the passion, these last chapters of John. He says, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now the son of man is glorified and God is glorified in him. The cross of Christ is where his glory is most beautifully been displayed. And what John is saying, we, we've seen the glory. We've seen it. We've beheld it. We understand it now. We couldn't see it before but now we can in the face of Christ. Friends, do you see that the Apostle John is writing this gospel, as I reminded you last week in chapter 20, 31. He says, I write these things so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that in believing you might have life. So John is saying, we've seen his glory. If you don't see the glory of God in the face of Christ, you won't come to him. But when you begin to see his glory, you're drawn to him. Because we're drawn to God. He's the one who has made us. But notice John says, we see his, we saw his glory. That word is to behold. In other words, if we give Jesus some passing cursory glance, you're not going to see that the word means to look at, to behold, to meditate, to contemplate. Now, I know I'm going to put before you a challenge in the season. It's hard. But, but I'm going to ask you to contemplate Christ. I'm going to ask you even to read through the Gospel of John this month. Maybe grab a member of this church and read together with them. The Gospel of John will probably take you two hours to sit down and read it. Maybe take the next eight days leading up to Christmas and begin reading. And just look, where do you see the glory of God in the face of Christ? Because it's plastered everywhere. At the Feast of Cana, when he changes the water into wine, they say we saw the glory of God. When he raises Lazarus, he says it's for the glory of God, that in Christ you see God's glory. Friends, I, I would encourage you. to. I know we're not a contemplative culture right now. I know we're more of a microwave people. And I'm asking you to slow down and think about these ideas. But this is where we're going to find joy. You know, we have a great need for hope in our culture right now. Where do you look to for hope? Is it going to be another administration? I mean, you don't have to have live long to recognize. It's not a good place to anchor your hope. Is it for a new relationship? Is it a new job? Is it better? Where is your hope going to be anchored? Or is it going to be anchored in the one who has come to reveal the very glory of God himself? No one else can reveal this glory other than Christ. Okay, third, he has come to dwell in the flesh to enter our human history. Look with me at 15. It's a clear parenthesis. So John, from 14 to 16, there's this little gap right there. And you see it in 15. He says, 
So John's inserting this so we would catch it. He's saying, John bore witness about him and cried out. This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Now, John the gospel writer, follow me here, is speaking about John the Baptist. And he's saying, John bore witness about him. Now, remember, John says he was, he comes after me. Because remember now, Jesus was the cousin of John, and he was born six months later. So Jesus came after John the Baptist, but he was really before him because he was the Word. In the beginning was the Word. What John is saying, John the Gospel writer, is saying the Baptist saw, experienced, he saw God in the flesh with his own eyes. John is trying to show us that Jesus isn't some legend or some fable like Odysseus or Hercules. He actually came in this. He came in our space and our time. He came in our flesh. He lived in our world. He dwelled like us. Do you see what he's saying? There's a historicity to Jesus, like Abraham Lincoln, like George Washington. You can't say, well, that's true for you, but it's, it's not true for me. No, if it's true historically, then it's true. It's true for me. It has to be true for you. So he establishes himself in our world so that we have to deal with him. Listen, all the other religions of the world really are rooted in teachings, ideologies, philosophies, ideas. The Christian faith is rooted in a person, a person who dwelled on this earth. So we can't easily dispense with him. He makes claims, I'm the light of the world. I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live forever. Who goes around saying that stuff? I mean, anybody that goes, what would you do with a person that said that? He makes these claims. A real, actual person makes these claims. We've got to do something with it. And this, this is C.S. Lewis kind of popularized this idea that to someone to say that stuff, I mean, they either have to be just a pathological liar. They have to be just trying to dupe the idiots of the world to follow them. Or they have to be raving mad, just a lunatic, just absolute crazy land. I mean, that they're going to say that in me is life and life eternal. Or they might just be right. They might be the Lord himself in the flesh. And that's what he's saying. He's entered our space and time. And he's, you got to do, friends, you may be here today just as watching these precious little kids up here. And you may not be a Christian, but you got to do, you can't put him on the shelf and pick him up later. He, he stands, he's, he's walked this planet. He's returned to the Father. He's going to return again. You've got to do something with him. May I encourage you to consider his claims. Consider going through the gospel. A lot of people have read the gospels out to disprove him and that have been strangely attracted to him. May I encourage you to do the same. Okay, the fourth reason he came to dwell in the flesh is to redeem us by grace. Look with me at 16 and 17. He says, for from his fullness... We have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. These sentences are so pregnant. I mean, they're so full of stuff. It takes a minute to kind of unwrap each verse. Do you see what he's saying? John the apostle is giving a personal testimony. He says, we've all received this grace from Jesus. Grace upon grace, he says. 
Now, when he says grace upon grace, literally, it's grace instead of grace. It's like grace with grace with grace with grace, grace replacing grace. It's like the, the, it's like the rolling waves on the shore at the ocean. They just, they just keep pounding. You can go to sleep, they're still pounding. You, know, you can wake up, they're still pounding. In Christ, there is grace for us. Grace that, that our eyes can be opened to the beauty of Christ that we might believe. We call it converting grace. You know, one day, for those of you who are here as Christians, there was one day you weren't a Christian. And then, and then one day your eyes kind of opened to it and understood it. And that wasn't because you all of a sudden became really intelligent. God's grace was being poured out to you. You wake up and you see it. And then God's grace comes to us when we enter trials or difficulties, but we find ourselves persevering. That's his grace. We've all received this grace. And then we have other issues in life, but we still find ourselves holding fast to Christ. That's grace. So John's saying we've received grace upon grace. upon. The Christian is a recipient of grace upon grace upon grace. Why does he go to Moses, though? He says... Moses brought the law, but Jesus brought this grace. Well, let me remind you that when Moses brought the law, there was grace and truth in the law. I mean, when you read the law, the Ten Commandments, let's say, there is truth to that. It's God's character. You see the law. Uh, the law does reveal uh, some degree of grace in terms of it says that a mediator is going to come. And the law is gracious in that it reveals our sin, right? When you read the Ten Commandments, so it's like a speed limit sign. You can be driving 100 miles down the road. You don't know that you're breaking the law. The speed limit sign kind of reminds you, you know, this is the law and you're now breaking it. Hearing the Ten Commandments gives us an awareness, although we have it in our soul as well. Uh, the law gives us an awareness that we break. So, for example, through the law, we find that we're all covetous. Through the law, we find that we're all adulterers, idolaters, we're all liars. I, I mean, maybe not every action that you perform, but clearly an attitude, right? Haven't we been covetous? Haven't we wanted to lie even if we couldn't? Haven't we lusted even though we didn't act on it? So we see, haven't we, haven't we disobeyed our parents? When you look at the law, we realize that we're all implicated, but there's no way out of the guilt. Until grace and truth came in Jesus. The law is pointing to Christ. You know, the law was given, but Jesus is the lawgiver. Uh, think about the law. The sacrificial system was given, but Jesus is the perfect lamb of God. So the law is like a shadow pointing to, so that we see when Jesus comes, this is where grace comes from. Friends, the law can condemn, only Jesus can forgive. The law can convict, only Jesus can free. And what John is saying, that now in Christ, we have grace. I, so think with me for a minute about the parable of the prodigal son. We talked about that a few weeks ago. You have those two brothers, right? The one brother's younger, and he asks for the father's money. He goes out and spends it on wine, women, and song. And he wakes up as he's eating with pigs, and he realizes... I got to go back to the father. Then you have the older brother. He was faithful and he was working and diligent, never even got a lamb, never even got a party. Which of those brothers really understood grace? The older brother didn't. 
The other brother didn't need grace. Why? Because he was so close to trying to keep the law. The younger brother, the one that made just a dumpster fire his life, he understood grace because he knew how much he needed the forgiveness. He knew his guilt. He knew his shame. And that, that's why guilt and shame can actually drive us to God. You know, when we begin to understand that he stands ready with grace upon grace upon grace. Friends, don't neglect the mercy of God. Too many of us spend too long trying to clean up our lives so that then we can go to God. That's not the idea. The idea is that you understand where you are and then run to God. Let him clean you up because he's the one that's given the son to give us grace upon grace. J.C. Ryle great um, Anglican bishop said, there is laid up in him as in a treasury of boundless supply of grace that any sinner can need, either in time or eternity. The spirit of life is his special gift to the church and conveys him as from a great root, sap and vigor to all the believing branches. Think of that for just a minute with me, that he's like the root feeding us with grace. Friends, in this season, Run to Christ for grace. I don't, I, I care where you've been. Uh, but on one hand, I want you to disregard how much perhaps of a mess you've made of life. There's grace upon grace for us. You run to him. You ask Christ for this grace. Through the law you have, the Moses brought the law. Jesus has brought forgiveness and freedom and joy. Uh, the last thing I would say to you that he has come in the flesh to dwell with us is to, is to reveal God to us. So I've explained four other things, right? He came in the flesh to dwell among us, number one, to dwell with us, to show us God's glory, to enter our history, to save us by grace, and then last, to show us God. Look with me at 18 because it's another kind of tricky verse. He says, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Okay, so, so hang with me here. So look, no one has seen God. Uh, none of us have seen God, right? That's what Moses just said in Exodus 33. No one's seen God. So we pause and we're in a bit of a jam right now. So how are we going to find God? He's saying you can't discover God. You, you can't investigate. It, not through your ingenuity will you find God. No one can see him. Uh, do you accept that with me? Now, you can see traces of God, right? You see his invisible attributes. You see creation. You see power. You see some mercy in the sun. You see parts of God, but, but you can't really know God. You can know aspects of him like Moses. But notice what he says. No one has seen God. Pause. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Well, who's that? Well, remember back in chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. So John, this is the prologue of John. Verse 1 and verse 18 are like bookends. And so when he says, the only God who is at the Father's side, he's saying it's the Word of God, it's Christ. Christ has come to make him known. And that Greek word to make him known is our word for exegete. Or it's to, it's to interpret God. That Jesus has come to reveal God in all of his perfections, in all of his beauty, in all of his power. He told Philip, if you want to see the Father, look at me. So Jesus has come to make him known. Do you know what this means? 
This means that apart from you coming to Christ, you really can't know God. Now, I know that you can know things about God. All of us in this room are theologians, whether you've gone to seminary or not. I mean, you all have thoughts of God. Uh, People tell me their thoughts of God with great confidence. Sometimes it's absolutely hilarious. Based on nothing, then just pure conjecture. Just the stuff between their ears. is We all come up with ideas about God. And many of them are just wrong. You cannot know God apart from knowing the Son. This is devastating. What I'm saying is that when people say, oh, I just believe God's, uh, he's just good that way. He's just going to love everybody. We don't have the right to just develop our own model of who God is. We become like the pagans of old. We make God in our own image. We make God someone like us. Isn't that a shock? But, but what I'm saying is devastating in the sense that the Jew who believes in God but doesn't know Christ, the Muslim who believes in God but doesn't know Christ, the Hindu who believes in God but doesn't know Christ, uh, the person out there on the street that has some semblance of Christian rootage, they have some version of God but not coming through, they don't know God. This is devastating. This is why he had to come. You think about in John 5, Jesus says these words, the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son, that all may honor the son, just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. God has chosen to receive honor through the son. Without the son, there is no honor for You can be thinking you're doing the greatest work for God. Apart from us coming to God through the Son, there is no knowledge of God. There is no full saving knowledge of God. This is incredible. This means that if you're here and you're not a Christian, or you haven't come uh, to understand Christ as his only Son sent to reveal him. This means that you have knowledge of God, but not a saving knowledge. And and I don't want you to neglect the uniqueness of this morning when we're talking about this. I I would ask you to consider looking at Christ. And, and as I said, reading a gospel, trying to open, ask God to open your eyes uh, to the nature of his glory in Christ. And for the, for the Christian here, then is this not a call to marvel over Christ, to love him deeply? Uh, to to want to follow him. And not out of some sort of obedience so that God loves you, but out of gratitude. Just out of happiness that God would be so kind to send one to save. So here, why did Jesus come? He invaded our land. He's invaded our world. He's come to dwell with us. Come to dwell with us, to show us God's glory, to enter our history, to be like us to save us by grace, and to lead us to the Father. You know, uh, Peter says there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Jesus himself said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He's come to make him known. Let's take even the next few moments, and I would just ask you to quietly bow your heads and, and ask God to open your eyes to reveal to you the glory of the Son. And I'm going to pray that the Spirit of God would bring these truths to bear to change us. And I'll pray for us in just a moment.
Father, when I consider the sun and the moon and the stars that you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? Father, we are um, rightly overwhelmed at your kindness to us, that you would bring forth your son taking on flesh, uh, that he might not just come to reveal you and your glory to us, uh, but that he would lead us to you, uh, providing us hope in the midst of a, of a broken world, a darkened world, a, a, a world at odds with itself. Father, the history is clear. Generation after generation, we try to find utopia and happiness and satisfaction life forevermore, and every generation meets the same end, dust. Our only hope comes from one who has come outside and yet has entered in. Father, because you are gracious, would you grant to us the fullness of your spirit to bring about these truths that you might save those who don't know you through your son and strengthen those who do and cause us to be a people who rejoice in the things that are, that are eternal, that are spiritual, that are godly. Father, we thank you for all the good things you give to us, but may we not, even in this season, overvalue them, love them inordinately. Father, grant us the grace to love them rightly. We thank you, Father, and pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.